From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Berry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we bring you analysis on the top story out of our radio newsrooms across the country. On Deadline this week is the sudden war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and some of the tall tales surrounding the conflict that threaten to change opinions and influence support based on misinformation. The Associated Press reported that, among the fabrications, users have shared false claims that a top Israeli commander had been kidnapped, circulated a false video imitating a BBC News report, and pushed old and unrelated clips of Russian President Vladimir Putin with inaccurate English captions. There's even this. A video shows North Korean leader Kim Jong-un allegedly saying that he blames President Joe Biden for the war and that under Biden, the world will face World War III. But the captions are made up. The leader of North Korea is actually celebrating the anniversary of the Communist Party. The video was shared on Instagram and TikTok, garnering more than 223,000 likes. Hundreds of thousands of people now believe something fantastical at best. And that's just one more example of why you need to know what's true and what's misinformation. U.S. President Joe Biden addressed the recent surge in disinformation last week, saying that it was a challenge to verify what was fact and what was fiction as more information comes out of the region. Rebecca Kern, the tech policy reporter for Politico, joined Odyssey in the Bay Area to discuss what to look for when you potentially see false information about the war. So what kinds of mis- and disinformation are we seeing about the Israel-Hamas war? Well, it's, it's really all over the place. What started in the early days was circulation of video and imagery from old wars in, in the past and some images from the Ukraine and Russia war going on there and even some clips from video games. So that often happens at the start of conflict that people just take advantage of kind of the chaotic uh, situation online and people are really looking for quick and updated information and it's hard for social media companies to really verify uh, you know millions of posts immediately so that that was some of the initial misinformation also elon musk reposted an account from the supreme leader of iran it was a video of the partiers outside of the music festival in israel it alleged that it was israeli combatants chasing Palestinians when in fact it was Hamas terrorists chasing Israelis. So there's a lot of imagery out there and a lot of violent imagery that violates these platforms policies. So it's just it's all over the place and it's it's hard for these platforms to really keep up with it. And we should mention that some people are putting up images knowing these are false or misleading, while other people just repost. They go, oh, okay, and they don't do it because they, you know, they don't, they don't do it knowingly. So both things are out there. What can the U.S. government do about it, and what are European nations doing? Yeah, there's very different approaches, and our the biggest challenge in the U.S. government is this thing we have called the First Amendment, and it really infringes a lot of action that the federal government can take on public-facing speech. At least the, the government can't really infringe private citizen speech. What platforms can do and are, are attempting to do more of is enforce their own policies. And since they're private entities and you, you check 
a terms of service agreement whenever you join one of these platforms like Facebook and, and X, you are agreeing that you're going to allow them to moderate their content under their rules. And so a lot of these have content rules saying no graphic videos or imagery, no incitement to violence, no propaganda from organized terrorist groups. So they are labeling and taking down Facebook and YouTube are saying hundreds of thousands of accounts and imagery since October 7th. This is what they're doing. And a lot of it's done with AI. That's what's happening in the U.S. In Europe, they actually have laws because they don't have the First Amendment, um, the equivalent. And that's it's called the Digital Service Act. And they have laws that prohibit platforms from pushing forth disinformation, misinformation, illegal content, violent content. And they're sending letters to X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google, and telling them you need to take action to remove more of this violative content or we can fine you. And the fine is up to 6% of their annual revenue. We have free speech here, but you cannot go into a movie theater and yell fire. So how can we take that and put it over here on these possibly harmful images? Because sometimes they're calling people to action to do something based on false information. That is very true. And I think platforms are saying they're doing their best to remove content that, like I mentioned, one of all, across all of them, they have policies that forbid incitement of violence and, you know, propaganda from identified terrorist organizations. Beyond that, they're trying to take it down, and, and, and individuals have to be vigilant about, you know, doing their own research about where this content comes from, and is this a trusted news source, or is this a friend of a friend, or someone you don't even know? So maybe you have to be more vigilant about knowing where your news is coming from before resharing it. Because in the absence of companies acting and individuals being more careful, the U.S. government just hasn't passed any legislation to hold these companies accountable for their content. There is one law on the books almost 30 years called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and that actually says platforms are allowed to moderate their own content, but they also are not able to be sued for hosting third-party content because they didn't create it. It's an, another individual. So it gives them a big liability shield, and a lot of lawmakers want to amend that law. It's just Congress has not agreed between Democrats and Republicans how to amend it. And so in the absence of that, these platforms really have protections that protects them if as long as they're doing some effort to moderate content, they can't be sued for the content they host. Here are the facts. Hamas launched missiles at Israel in a shocking move at the beginning of the month. Israel retaliated with airstrikes of its own. Since then, the number of people killed in Israel has surpassed 1,400. In Gaza, the center of the conflict, the death toll has risen above 5,000. That's according to the United Nations. The UN is also reporting that in Gaza, there have been more than 15,000 people injured. Meanwhile, Israeli authorities have reported that at least 212 Israeli and foreign nationals are being held captive by Hamas in Gaza. While at first Israel had cut off aid to the small strip of land on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, leaving thousands without access to food, water, or medical supplies, trucks have started entering Gaza from Egypt through the Rafah border crossing. For some, it may seem like the conflict in Israel turned sour overnight, 
or even in the last decade. But the battle between Hamas and Israel has actually been stewing for some time. Part of the entrenched animosity between Israel and Palestinians in the region is the volatile history of Jerusalem, which both Israelis and Palestinians claim as a holy spot in their respective religions. Brian Britt, a professor of religion and culture at Virginia Tech, joined Odyssey for more on the true, fact not fiction, history of Jerusalem and the part it plays in the ongoing war. Give us a top-line understanding of the conflict, uh, <laughs> if you can, in about two minutes, uh, about the sure. history of Jerusalem that's driving this war. It is a long history, but I also think the recent history is even more relevant than mm. the pre-modern history. You might know that the uh, one of the reasons given for the recent um, Hamas attacks was the Israeli handling of holy sites in Jerusalem. And as you said, Jerusalem has holy sites for the three traditions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. The control of those holy sites shifted to Israel in 1967 when there was a war. And so between the creation of the State of Israel in 1948 and 1967, Jordan had control of those sites. And then after the 1967 war, the handling of those sites has been contested, but the holy sites for Muslims have continued to be in the hands of the Jordanian authority called Waqf. And and yet what has happened in the most recent couple of years is that the status quo and the agreements on who gets access to certain holy sites, how they're administered, and some conflicts on those sites, all of that has changed a little bit recently, and that's escalated tensions and contributed to the conflict. Especially the Al-Aqsa Mosque, I think that's considered um, Islam's third holiest site in the world, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. So the the uh, Quran talks about a night journey taken by the Prophet, Surah 17, a night journey taken by the Prophet to the distant mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and that is associated with the site that's there in Jerusalem, which is also the site of the former Jewish temple that was destroyed earlier in the uh, by the Roman Empire around the year 70 of the Common Era. And that's the Temple of the Western Wall? Yes. So the, the Jewish temple was on the, more or less the same site as the current Al-Aqsa Mosque, mm-hmm. and the, the, the um, retaining wall for that first century temple is the holiest site for Jewish pilgrims, mm-hmm. and it's just below the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, yes, that's a it's a very intense and tense site. And it's all within a very small miles of land. That's right. I mean, the, Jerusalem is, today, Jerusalem is the most populous city in Israel-Palestine. And Israel has control of the whole city, but it really feels mostly kind of divided between east and west. But the holy sites we're talking about are in the smaller medieval walled city within that. This walled city has most of the sites that are really sacred to Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And yes, as you say, it's a medieval city with very narrow streets, and now it's an extremely tense place. And uh, and yeah, and it has become more and more the focus of rhetoric around the war. And finally, I have one more question for you, and it's, it's a big one. Uh, do you think that uh, after Hamas's horrific attack on Israel, that uh, the two-state solution is even possible? Well, that's a, that is a very big question. And one thing I would say about that is that the focus on Jerusalem extends way, way beyond Israel-Palestine to the United States, to Christians, Jews, and Muslims around the world. There are over two billion Christians and one and a half billion Muslims. And so 
any any kind of resolution or even de-escalation involves changes in how people think about this relationship with respect to Jerusalem and the Holy Site. So that th- there are terrible things happening all around the world, but in some ways I think the attention, you, c- you can't understand the massive amount of attention on this war without understanding the strong feelings people have there, but also around the world about the holy places. And so, sure, I'm hopeful. I I always hope there's a chance for a two-state solution or other people talk about a democratic one-state solution. (laughs) Those are all things we can imagine. If you think about the people living there, it's not a great place to live. In fact, a lot of people are leaving Jerusalem. It's it's a very poor city. There's high unemployment. There's not very much to do there. So if you could imagine uh, the world focusing its attention on the welfare of the human beings living there and changing or improving religious pilgrimage access, yeah, sure, I would take world powers dedicating the same kind of energy to the, the war as, as everybody else. It's been more than two weeks since Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war on Hamas. While fighting doesn't currently have an end in sight, many have started to question its impact on the U.S., specifically President Joe Biden. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine ongoing, and fears about entities like Iran or Syria piling on the Israel-Hamas war, the president has a lot on his plate. He also turns 81 in less than a month. Here at home, tensions were high as the U.S. House of Representatives struggled to unify behind a speaker. Without one, the U.S. was left in a near state of paralysis when it came to delivering international aid. Patricia Krauss, a political and foreign policy expert and a professor at the University of New Haven, joined Odyssey in Los Angeles to discuss the president's role in these wars and the toll it might take on him. Well, I mean, I suppose because, you know, we're now dealing with these two separate wars um, in the United States, you know, obviously we're always been considered sort of the leaders of the free world. So our obligations and responsibilities in these two situations are significant, you know, about being his most important speech in his presidency. He's got a long way to go in his presidency. So I'm not sure that, that that's necessarily the case, but I do think that people are confused about what our role should be. We've been dealing with the Ukraine situation far longer. The Israel situation, you know, is, is just more recent. So I think people want to know why should we be sending all this money overseas? Why do we need to be invested? Helping them to understand that it, it's not simply about sort of what happens within the confines of the United States, but we're deeply impacted by what goes on around the world. And and the security of the United States is deeply tied to both of these countries. You know, there's a lot of people drawing comparisons uh, between what's happening now as we rush to kind of preserve democracies as as we see them in Ukraine and in Israel as it fights off uh, Hamas. They draw parallels with what happened back in the 50s and 60s with, say, Korea and Vietnam. We were interested, we said, in preserving democracy and stopping the spread of communism. So we sent money, material, supplies, and eventually soldiers to uh, Vietnam and Korea. And what did that get us? There are some concerns that we are walking into the same type of situation here, are we? You know, I don't think so with these two situations. I think you'd be more likely to equate that with, say, what happened in Iraq and what happened in Afghanistan and that we were there for so long and what did we really accomplish there? Um, You know, those are the questions that are often raised. I think in these 
two situations, you're almost looking at where Putin, he's not going to be satisfied with simply taking Ukraine. So if he happens to be able to win in Ukraine, there are other countries that are going to follow. And that's the biggest thing is we can't have him expanding his view of government in that part of the world. So I think when you're talking about Ukraine, again, like I said, people don't understand that this could be a direct threat to the United States. But if he decides to just keep going, then there are allies that we have over there. You have the NATO countries. There's a lot of things that could eventually sort of be brought to our shores in that sense. So defeating him in terms of not allowing him to overtake Ukraine, I think is extremely important. And with Israel, obviously, it's a, it's a newer situation. But, you know, in this sense, again, it, you can't let terrorism take over. So all that's to say, this is a very nuanced situation with implications across the globe, both personally and politically. And you have a role in it too as a consumer of news. Your job is to have the critical thinking skills to discern the difference between fact and fiction. The most simple thing you can do is to not trust news from social media. When you do see news on social media, check the source. Is it NBC News or is it sharealink.com? The first has vetted journalists, the second is made up. You also have to be able to discern the difference between news and opinion. Too many people believe pundits are journalists. They're not. Talk show hosts, even when they're on cable news networks, are sharing their opinion. And the more hot air they take in, the higher their ratings go up. Keep that in mind. And lastly, here's a shameless plug. Know that Odyssey's all-news radio stations from coast to coast have unbiased news 24 hours a day. From 1010 Winds in New York to KNX in Los Angeles and other major cities across the U.S., you can trust their reporting. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Barry, and I want to say thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey's serving of a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed. 